it's great for us because we have a ton of bikes to choose from. But I think people live in the past with this stuff. They're like, oh, well, my uncle, my uncle Roger had this, uh, you know, this bike and it had all these problems. But it was like 1988. 20 or 30 years is a very long time for motorcycle development. And yeah. right now, everyone's on their A game. I mean, all the bikes are reliable. The, the, yeah. the Italian bikes, I mean, I wouldn't hesitate to buy any brand. Coming to you from the heart of America, this is the Adventure Motorcycle USA podcast. On each episode, we'll talk with industry insiders, experienced adventure riders, ADV creators, and moto fabricators. With a passion for adventure and a penchant for two-wheel travel, we explore the stories of those behind the adventure motorcycle world. On the show today, we catch up with Ian Schoenlieber of Big Rock Moto. If you ride adventure motorcycles and aren't a subscriber to Ian's YouTube channel, you're missing out on some of the most informative, insightful, and thorough adventure motorcycle content out there. We talk with Ian about how he became a full-time YouTuber, what he likes in the small, middleweight, and large ADV motorcycle categories, and talk through some of his favorite aftermarket accessories. Speaking of the aftermarket... If you're a frequent listener to this podcast, you know I've had a 2022 KTM 890 Adventure R on order for quite a while. Well, this past week, I finally got it. And within 24 hours, I had it over with the guys at Bulletproof Designs, putting on all their aftermarket hard parts. We added a rear disc guard and caliper guard, new ADV foot pegs, a case saver, sprocket guard, and shift sensor guard, and a new master cylinder guard. I'm telling you guys, if you're riding the KTM 790 or 890 or the Norden 901, Give the guys at Bulletproof Designs a call and get your bike set up and protected. I put some install videos on our Adventure Motorcycle USA Facebook page at at ADV Motorcycle USA. If you're not familiar with Bulletproof, they're an industry-leading manufacturer of billet aluminum off-road protection guards and accessories, and their hard parts are purpose-built to protect your motorcycle. Lightweight, simple to install, and made in the U.S., all the Bulletproof guards come with a lifetime warranty. Again, Give them a call or check them out at bulletproofdesigns.com. Finally, if you're inclined to want to support this podcast, please give us a five-star review on Apple Podcasts or subscribe wherever you listen so you'll always get a notice when the latest episode drops. Okay, enjoy this episode with Ian Schoenlieber of Big Rock Moto. Welcome back to the Adventure Motorcycle USA podcast. I'm your host, Matt McFadden, joined as always by my good friend and co-host, Terry T-Rail Terrell. Guys, we have a really fun episode for you today. Ian Schoenlieber is on with us from Big Rock Moto. Ian, welcome to the Adventure Motorcycle USA podcast. Thank you guys so much for inviting me. It's a real honor. Well, it's exciting. I've been watching your videos for some time. I think... Anytime you're out looking at either a new adventure bike or looking at what the competition to your bike has to offer, you're, you're kind of combing through the threads and the forums and YouTube and I, your videos resonate with me. And so I watched, I don't know, I'm 12, 13, 15, 20 videos of yours. And after about, you know, subscribing and seeing all the new content that you have out, I was like, 
uh, Terry, we need to have Ian on the show and talk about what he's doing here. So welcome. Uh, I think this is going to be a, a really fun conversation. Look forward to the evening. Yeah. Thank so, you guys so much for inviting me. Yeah. So, so let's talk about, let's talk about your background first. Um, are you a California native and did you grow up riding out in the desert? Uh, I feel like a lot, about half of our guests grew up racing uh, some kind of dirt bike in California. Uh, what's your background with motorcycles? How'd you get into the sport? Yeah, that's a good story. So I, I did, I am a California native. So I grew up in Southern California, kind of outside of a town called Temecula. And there was always like a dirt bike culture and kind of that. But my background was a little different. So I didn't really ever do the desert thing very much. So we didn't, we didn't do like the toy hauler to the desert thing with dirt bikes. My parents didn't have, we didn't have anything like that. And I never did motocross either. So the way that I got into motorcycles was my aunt and uncle uh, owned a property across the street and they had like this old barn with all this old stuff in it. And in this barn, because I would always go play there because I was like a curious kid or whatever. I was probably like 10 or 11 years old. And they had this motorcycle in there. I didn't know what it was. Uh, my uncle was, saw that I was interested in it. So he brought it out and helped me get it kind of uh, brought it back to life. And we had to put new tires on it and clean the carb and all this stuff. And the whole process was fascinating to me. So it was a Honda C70 scooter. So my first oh, motorcycle... Cool. Um, and I, I didn't know what the difference really was like scooter, dirt bike. I don't, I don't know. It was just a bike I could ride. Um, so we got it and, and I rode that, uh, around all the hills and sort of trails around Temecula, which back then there was a lot more. Now it's like a hugely developed winery area and everything, but it used to just be open country and tons of great trail riding. So that was, I was probably like 11, 12 years old and I was riding off road everywhere. Every day I would go out after school and this was my escape from school and all the stuff I was dealing with. So that's really what got me into riding. And then there was a series of dirt bikes and dual sport bikes and eventually adventure bikes. But that's really, that's really the Genesis story. And it was off-roading because, you know, you're too young to ride on the highway. Sure. So you're going to ride off-road, even though the first bike or two I had were not even off-road bikes. But I, I beat the heck out of that scooter. I mean, I just yeah. I totally destroyed it. Big Rock Motos, your your channel. How long have you been been doing this? You're you're not an old guy, but you're you're old enough that you were uh, into your formative years before YouTube videos became a uh, profitable thing. Yeah, I've only been doing the YouTube stuff for maybe two or three years. Um, I think I. I'd have to look at the at the data, but my first video was probably three years ago. I could maybe it was four, yeah. but those first those first year or two, I wasn't really serious about it. I was like most people, just post a few things and you know see what happens. Like um, so I had a I had a long career in nonprofit management. So right out of right out of college, uh, I got hired by a nonprofit organization. And long story short, I was a development director for a long time. So from like you know, early twenties all the way till just a year ago. Uh, and I'm, I'm, what am I 37 now? So yeah, you know, my whole career was basically that. And I still am connected in the nonprofit management world and fundraising and I serve on boards and I do all that stuff. Yeah. Um, but when I, when I found out that you could make money, you know, with through YouTube and I was making motorcycle videos, mostly at a few other t kinds of videos, but uh, it was just interesting. So I treated it as a way to earn a little extra money for like 
oh, bike parts, tires, uh, you know, more because you know it never ends with that stuff. Riding gear, right? I mean, a good a good riding suit now is fifteen hundred dollars. So it's it's like you could never earn enough money. So I used it for that. You know, it doesn't happen overnight, but eventually it became big enough where I was like, okay, that's actually pretty serious. Yeah. Like, I think I remember the first day where you see in your YouTube analytics, like how many people watched and how much money you made. And I was like, I need to pay attention to this. Like, this is not just something that could pay for tires. This is something that can be a job. Yeah. And that was like a pivotal moment where I was like, okay, I need to really think about the future. And that was probably a couple years ago. And then uh, about, about 10 months ago, I think last April or last May, uh, I decided to work on this full time. And there were a lot of factor, different factors that kind of made that happen. But I've been doing it only full time for about 10 months. Yeah. Well, I think it's interesting. And I don't, I don't want this to become a, you know, how to become a millionaire via YouTube video. Uh, <laughs> well, you won't convers- be a millionaire. I'll tell you that. <laughs> <laughs> Conversation. But I mean, you threw your first couple videos up there. But at, at what point, How I mean, you had 80,000 subscribers now. I was watching one of your videos that had, you know, over half a million views on it. At, at what, where's the tipping point there at where, where you were making these and then you were like, Boy, this is this is resonating with a certain community here, and I'm getting good positive feedback, positive reinforcement. At what point were you like, you know what? Let me let me sit down and 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 really think if this is a, a career or not. For me, it really revolved a lot around the income part of it because people think that the subscribers is the most important thing, but actually that's not really true. It it more has to do with the watch time. And how long people are watching your videos? Can you keep an audience engaged? What kind of ads are running and all those things. So even as a small YouTube channel, I was outperforming a lot of larger channels in terms of how I could kind of monetize stuff. And I had a variety of different kind of videos, which now I focus just on motorcycles and they have a separate channel. Um, But I think it was, I was probably around like 10,000 subscribers. And I don't remember what, I don't want to talk specific about the income, but it was, you know, a certain point of probably around that 10,000 subscriber mark. And when I started to do more motorcycle videos and I realized that was my niche and specifically mm-hmm. adventure bikes, because we all know the adventure thing has been a huge, um, I mean, I've seen it from before. Like when I started riding KLRs, like I was in high school, there was no, it wasn't like a big deal. You just, it was riding, you know, it wasn't like right. this big adventure bike craze. So it wasn't even a category, right? No, not really. They didn't didn't even identify themselves. It was dual sport. It was just a a KLR. You had like a KLR and you had some guys had GSs and uh, and other countries like in Europe, they got other bikes like the Tenere's and stuff. We never got, we just had the KLR and GS and that was kind of it, you know, DR650. But anyway, uh, trying to get back to my train of thought, the, the adventure, the adventure bike thing happened was really starting to go crazy at the same time my channel was building so i was like well that's the niche right there like i've been riding adventure bikes since i was like in high school and i've owned just about everything and so i had this base of knowledge that i could talk about and people really connected with it and once i saw the viewership on the motorcycle stuff really getting up there i realized okay this could be this could be a future and adventure motorcycle segment is is not slowing down at all yeah um and you know 
I mean, everything eventually has like a time where it slows down, but we're definitely not there yet. I think, uh, you know, what's interesting is um, what I appreciate uh, appreciate most about your videos is the brutal honesty. You're almost agnostic to brand, right? You, yeah. you've, you've owned and, and ridden just about everything out there. And even those motorcycles like the KLR, and I think you've had, what, six or seven KLRs in, in, in your lifetime, where you're like, you know, um, there's almost a, um, it's more than a motorcycle, right? It's all of the, that combined experience that you had and all those, just those, those good feelings that you had on the, on, the, on the back of that bike. But at the same time, you're like, Kawasaki did not give a shit about upgrading this motorcycle. But you're brutally honest about where that motorcycle has its faults. And mm-hmm. it's, uh, look, I, we're, we're going to jump right into this. I've taken some shit over the last couple episodes for referring to the, the KLR 650 as the Honda Civic of motorcycles. And I don't mean that as a slight. I really, I really don't. I've, I owned it. That bike took me from on the Continental Divide. I think you did that same trip, Ian, from, from Canada to Mexico. And there will be a, uh, always a special place in my heart for that, that KLR but it does have its faults, right? It's got a 32 horsepower motor. It's a, you know, it's, it's smooth, but it's still, you know, kind of a thumper. Let's just, let's just put a pin there for the, for the KLR. Let's, Mm -hmm. let's come, let's come back to that. As as you grow your YouTube channel, and I know you have sponsors now through RevZilla and, and Rocky Mountain ATV. How are you going to maintain or how do you maintain that kind of objectivity uh, as you review bikes? Does it become harder? Um, you know, the hard part about it is you're, you're trying to maintain positive relationship with the OEMs, right? Right. So I can't, even if there's a bike that I really don't like, I really can't, I have to be very diplomatic about how I say certain things. So viewers can tell like when I'm kind of dissing a bike, right? Like I'm doing right now, uh, one of the projects I have is the uh, 850 GS Adventure. And I mean, it's going to be a tough one because I don't know, like for the price, it doesn't make a lot of sense to me in their lineup or even compared to its competitors. But being objective, I think has always been something that I, I really is a, is my, one of my main goals. I don't brand loyalty. I honestly don't even understand it. Like I can't relate to it because for me, it's just the experience of motorcycling. I I don't care what brand it is or what kind of riding gear or anything. Like I I like to try everything and use everything. And so when people, I mean, there there's definitely motorcycles I like more than others, but I couldn't really ever pick a favorite brand of motorcycle or or, or because there's some models I like and some I don't. Yeah. And so the, the brand loyalty thing never really, I, I don't get it. And I'm, I'm, I think I'm going to do a video about it this year because everybody, like when I do a video about the Yamaha T7, the KTM, uh, well, no, they're, those guys are like, oh, well, yeah, it's the best bike in the world. And KTMs are, you know, all they do is break down all day. But if I do like a video about the 890 or the, or the 901 or the Norton, People are like, oh, yeah, I've had a thousand KTMs and I never had a problem. And, you know, and Japanese bikes are boring. So there's always two sides of the coin. For sure. Yeah. And yeah. How do you, no one can actually say scientifically that one brand is unreliable versus another in, in the modern day and age. Maybe 20 years ago. Sure. KTM was probably crap 20 years ago or things like that. But right now, 
try to find a bad motorcycle, right? That's unreliable. Like any brand new bike, even a new Royal Enfield is reliable, pretty reliable. Yeah. I mean, it's, it's great for us because we have a ton of bikes to choose from, but I think people live in the past with this stuff. Mm-hmm. They're like, Oh, mm-hmm. well, my uncle, my uncle Roger had this, uh, you know, this bike and it had all these problems, but it was like 1988. Right. <laughs> or, 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 I mean, 20 or 30 years is a very long time for motorcycle development. And yeah. right now, everyone's on their A game. I mean, all the bikes are reliable. The, the, yeah. the Italian bikes. I mean, I wouldn't hesitate to buy any brand. So I, I don't and, get. And, I don't get and, the brand loyalty. And, and going back to your 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 current project with the BMW, um, what's A fifty right? A fifty so, GS Adventure. Yeah. A fifty GS Adventure. I mean, you're you're a big BMW GS twelve fifty Adventure guy, right? So it's not that you're you're dissing on BMW. It's just look, they made a bike and when you line it up, and this is what I love about your videos is that you're like, look, here's where this bike fits and it may do all these things, but here's the price point and look at all these other bikes in this price point. You break out your whiteboard and you got it, you know, the X, Y axis and you got it all broken down. (laughs) And very quickly you look at this thing and you're like, well, that's really expensive for, you know, what are you paying for here? Are you paying for performance? Are you paying for a nameplate? And yeah, it's, it's true. I mean, you have to, part of my integrity as a, a content creator or a motorcycle journalist or whatever you want to call me is, is that level of detail and a level of objectivity and cutting through the hype because hype is, hype is never true. Like it's never true. You always have to positively or negatively. Yeah. Both ways. So you have to cut through that and say, okay, this bike weighs this much, it costs this much, it, it has these features or doesn't have these features. How is that competitive with these other bikes, right? And, and there's people can draw their own conclusions and I can lead them to that. But I'm not going to say, oh, this bike is crap or this bike is the best because it's a BMW or because it's a KTM or whatever, because it doesn't. it's just not true. What? And the manufa- I think for the most part, the manufacturers that I work with understand that like – you know, create, uh, reviewers and journalists, they have to give both sides of the coin. But if I come out and just say something that's just like not diplomatic, then they might have a problem with that. You might not get the next bike. Right. But I, I want to keep getting press bikes. And so like, yeah. I'm just starting to work with BMW this year. Like last year, I didn't have BMW. So so you're out buying your bikes versus them loaning you a yeah. bike for a period so, of time to review. I mean, and I would still, even if I didn't get press bikes, I would still going to own two or three bikes of my own, right? To customize mm-hmm. and do long-term content and just bikes that I would just want to own as a rider. And the 1250 is probably still one of those. But I, I mean, I didn't buy an A50, so that should tell you right there. I did, I did not even consider it, uh, you know, but I have a, I have a 901. And I would buy an 890. I would buy a Tiger 900, right? Right. So people can kind of tell. And I try to give the best advice. I want to be useful. I want to provide education. I, I don't want to be just another hype YouTuber out there. Not that there's a lot of those in the motorcycle space. Motorcycle YouTubers are pretty good, but you see a lot of crap on YouTube. And I just don't want to be that person. I, yeah. I think that's where your followers, though, appreciate what you do is the people that are not those brand loyal riders or what have you that are looking for a new bike or what have you, they want to hear those opinions, um, you know, straight up versus, you know, Hey, I'm a KTM guy and that's the way it's going to be. Yeah. I don't, I don't think you could really be like uh, a, a, a motorcycle journalist if you had like a brand loyalty really, or 
if I guess if you did have one, you'd really have to bury it because you just can't. You have to look at everything equally and evaluate it. You know, I've never owned an Aprilia before, and I'm learning more about it. And but that um, Touareg 660 looks really compelling. Um, An interesting bike, right? It looks su- on paper like it's super compelling and it's priced right. Yeah. So I'll probably end up with one of those too. Yeah, and I think I think one of the the interesting things that you've done. I mean, you know. I looked at this category, you know, and I, I got into it 10, 11 years ago as kind of one category. And, you know, I haven't owned a ton of bikes, but, you know, a, a KLR 650, a KTM 1090, um, a, a BMW GS 1200. And I've always kind of seen or looked at it through the lens of the adventure category. And you got, you know, slightly bigger adventure bikes, slightly smaller adventure bikes. But you've really gone into kind of an unofficial, official segmentation of lightweight, middleweight, and heavyweight bikes. Um, explain a little bit of what, about what, how you're breaking those down and what you like today, you know, what kind of bikes you like in each of those three categories today. Yeah, that's a good topic. And I really want to get more audience feedback on that and maybe do some more videos because there's a couple ways you could break that break those categories. You could do it by weight or you could do it by engine size. Those would be the two main ways, right? Mm-hmm. And I think in one of my videos that I, I don't remember if I did it by weight or by engine size, maybe you did I did it by it engine by, size zero to, I think zero to 500. And then, uh-huh. yep. yeah, that is, but the, but the downfall of that approach is what about the uh, KTM 690 then where, I mean, because it's lightweight, but it's a big engine and it's powerful. Yeah, you wouldn't so put that in middleweight, right? It like, but but I was thinking about it before the before this uh, podcast. I was like, because I was going to say that's the best lightweight adventure bike, because it is like by weight is lightweight, but mm-hmm. by engine size it puts it in that middle category. So I guess it doesn't really matter at the end of the day. But those would be two ways you could break them up. But maybe weight makes more. I think people on, on some of the videos were saying that weight might be a better way to to really break it up. So like 400 pounds and under like 400 to 500 and then maybe 500 and up. I, I don't know. Cause sure. if you look, if you put a graph of all the bikes, they're almost all, all the multi-cylinder bikes are between 400 and 600, right? There's no yeah. multi-cylinder bike below 400. Right. Yeah. Um, you'd have to go to a single. Yeah. So, I mean, we, we look, we had uh, Simon Cudby on our last ep- episode. I listened was, to that know, one. Yeah. Adventure photographer. Right. And he went from an 890 to a 701 yeah. because of weight. Right. It's Purely because weight. of weight. Yeah. It's weight. And and weight comes into play if you're doing, you know, uh, aggressive, like harder trails. Sure. Um, but I've, I've always, since I was young, I've ridden the heavy bikes. So they don't really bug me too much. So I'm kind of used to it, but a lot of people really don't like the heavier bikes. They really prefer the smaller dual sports and, and stuff. And, you know, for me, like if I think of like going out of state and riding thousands of miles on the highway, I don't picture myself on a single cylinder. I don't care how good it is. Like I've ridden the newer 690s and 701s. They're amazing. They're incredible. But I still don't know that I'd want to do a multi-state tour on it. I was just going to ask so, personally you know, obviously you do this as uh, for your living and you, and you have to review and, and ride them all, but where do you personally live when it, when it comes to enjoyment on an adventure bike? Are you in that bigger bike category? I mean, if I had to pick one, it'd be the midsize. It'd be something like an 890R. I think like if I was buying a bike today from, and didn't care about content, 
I would just buy an A90R and customize it with the things I want. And I mean, you can't beat it for that's for not the, the answer I thought you were gonna say. Really? I thought you were gonna say the T7. No, I, I no because there's a couple things there. Cruise control is a must for me. Um, tra- traction control, the electronics, the rider aids, all the customization suspension. of that. The suspension is huge. Like, yeah. no, I don't care what you do to that T7. It won't even be as good as a stock 890R. Yeah. And I've just, once you ride everything and know how good it can be, it's a problem because then you're like, you're not going to spend a bunch of time on the 890R and then be like, oh, I'm going to go get a KLR or a T7. Right. Because you've been spoiled. You're ruined now. You, yeah. You're used to the the better thing. And, and I did, I mean, for, for a more budget type bike, that T7 is, is amazing. The engine is one of the best engines ever made. Mm-hmm. But the suspension is kind of crappy and it is pretty top heavy. And, you know, I covered those things in some of my videos and people can take it or leave it. But that's that's my opinion after riding all, all the different bikes. But for 10 grand brand new, there's, yeah. there's no... Parts everywhere in the world. Yeah. Yeah. Yamaha reliability. I mean, it's you, it's a great package. But, I mean, KTM kind of has, for, for a long time, they've been kind of ahead of the game. Way back to when they brought out the 950. What was that, 2003 or something? Yeah. I mean, it was it was crazy. Nobody had anything. like, And it wasn't very reliable, those early ones. Sure. Um, but I had we a repli- we, we, we replaced a few water pumps and yeah. a few pumps on the yeah, I had fuel pumps fail. I had even the guy I sold my my 952. He got like 50 miles from my house, and the fuel pump failed, and God, so man. had to go pick them up. You know. <laughs> yeah, uh, no, we we carried one on the trail, and people are like, "You carry fuel pump?" You're like, "Yeah, water pumps, water pumps." Uh, yeah, you know, and it was just like if they could have just like figured a few things because the suspension was good, the motor was good. Yeah, they got bad fuel mileage on the early ones, but I mean, now we're nitpicking. But um, sure, those those late 990s are. Those are, I think those are going to become a pretty like, I don't know. I don't want to say legendary, but those are, those are pretty. I think so. You hear a lot of people say that was my kind of favorite bike to ride. It's one of the most fun adventure bikes to ride. That V twin. It's just, you can never replicate that sound with a parallel twin. Right. You know, but for packaging, the V twin is, is bad because you can't fit the fuel tank and air box and everything in a compact way. And so, of course, they're going to go to a parallel twin because it's way better to package everything else around it. Yeah. And, I mean, if you ride an 890 or even a 790 and a 990 back-to-back, it's it's like, okay, <laughs> the new yeah, bike is right. way better. It handles so way much better. better. But it so so is going back to the original, so is the 690 your, your lightweight? I, w- I mean, if it's by weight, I would say the 690, but I would qualify to say only the newer ones with the twin counterbalance because – I own. I built up a 2018, I think it was, and I wasn't happy with it. They, they like above 65, it, it, the vibration was just so bad. But when they moved to the newer engine, and I rode that bike, that was a game changer. That was like, okay, that's smooth. I could, mm-hmm. I could do a long day ride with that. I, I think I'm pretty sensitive to vibration because some people with the earlier 690s didn't didn't seem to care, but you have to realize that some people come into the adventure space from dirt bikes. So they have no standard of comfort or refinement at all. Right. But if you come to it from sport touring bikes, you're going to ride like a 500 EXC and be like, this thing is a rattle trap. A little bit like, of vibration. You know? and you're, yeah. You're ready to sell yeah, it. I'm losing all my feelings. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. So it's, it's all depending on what, what your past experience was. So 
when people say something vibrates or something's uncomfortable, I'm like, well, compared to what? So uh, 690, 701, kind of in that lightweight category. Yeah, and if I had How to pick, like, if I had to pick by engine size, I mean, there's, I mean, maybe maybe the KTM 390 might on paper is probably the best like small like small displacement adventure yeah. bike. Um, because there's not a lot of else. I mean, the CRF 300L, like I have the 300L in the garage right now for test. But the suspension, I mean, come on, Honda. Like, it's so soft, you can't ride it. I mean, Itchy Boots can ride it because she weighs like 90 pounds or whatever. Right. Yeah, I just, so I don't know. The small category, I wish there were more options. I mean, you have the Himalayan, but that weighs as much as a KLR. Right. I, I don't know. It's 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 tough in that category. You used to have like the WR250R. A lot of people would adventurize that. Mm-hmm. Um, I had one of those. I never really meshed with that bike. Um, it just What's a DR650 weigh? Is that is that the DR650? Yeah, the DR650 by weight would be in there for sure. Yeah. But it everybody on my channel always says, "Oh, what about the DR, the best bike in the world?" But yeah, but that's like it's as old as me. I mean, right. it's there's nothing really wrong with it. But it's five gears. It's air cooled. Like it doesn't have any wind protection, has a tiny gas tank. The seat's uncomfortable. You'd have to, you have to spend like two or three grand. That suspension is soft. Sure. If you want to like spend two grand customizing it, if not more then yeah. may, and then still you wouldn't even have as good of a bike as a, uh, anything you could buy new. So I, I don't know. People, people are weird with, with that kind of stuff. People think that the old school, like is more reliable. Now I, I don't agree with that. Like, <laughs> I don't really agree. I think the new bikes are more reliable in general. Yeah. Um, but the DR is really good though. The DR is taking people around the world and um, it's simple. It's relatively light. You know, it's easy to ride. It has good torque. It was always like the lightweight version of the KLR, you know? Mm-hmm. Ian, do you mm-hmm. make it a point for to um, on your reviews to make sure that you're reviewing it as a stock model or, you know, you talk about a- adding lots of things yeah. to it, but. Your initial review is always stock, correct? Yeah, I mean, if it's a press bike, then it's going to be totally factory. It might have some factory options, like um, you know, their stock luggage or something, which usually is bad. But the uh, yeah, it'll be it'll be stock. And then if I'm doing my own bikes, then that's probably going to have accessories and things on it, and I'll mention that. Um, well, like with the Norden, I'm doing a whole series so people can see how is it stock. And then I've already like modified it, but those videos just aren't out yet. And so people will get to see like what I've done to it and what changed, what I'm trying to address because some bikes aren't that great stock, but you do a few changes and they're really good. Yeah. Is the 890 your adventure middleweight category winner? Does that 901 have a place in there? You know, uh, I think the 890R is just very compelling because of the suspension performance Mm -hmm. because to duplicate that in the aftermarket is so expensive. And it's also time consuming to tear your bike apart and try to suspension shops and got to send it off and get it back. And you lose two or three weeks, you know, it's a lot of work. So that's very compelling. Some people just don't like the styling and some people just don't like KTM, I guess as a brand for whatever reason. So they might go towards the the Husky. Mm -hmm. Um, The Husky's, I like the way it looks. The seat is more comfortable. The windshield is a little better. I like the dashboard better, actually. There's a few small things, um, but the suspension is is okay. It's pretty good, actually. It's above average, but it's not the 890R. Mm-hmm. But it, 
But unless you're really aggressive off-road, you're not going to care about that. And Yeah, it's a, it's a refined Riders 890, right? Yeah, it's like a little more polished and like the headlights are really good and they give you the driving lights. And I don't know, I think it's really compelling. You get a lot for the money and they give you the quick shifter and the cruise control standard. You don't have to buy an extra package like KTM does mm-hmm. um, to get that. Yeah, so it's, it's interesting really, how they're selling software now, right? Here's the bike. Well, if you want the technology package. And the sad thing is, like with cars and bikes, that's where direction is going. It's bad. Where, for the yeah, consumer. that's where we're headed. Yeah. It's bad for the consumer, but the companies want to, they even have a name for it. It's like after sale income, revenue stream or something. Mm-hmm. And they want, and they're going to subscriptions and things like that. Like I could go on a tangent about cars, but, but yeah, it's, uh, they want to earn money beyond just selling the vehicle. Yeah. Well, I, we were talking about this with, with our good friend, Bud Carmen, who's been on the show and Bud, you know, has like 20 CNC machines where he's making hard parts out of, out of bill of aluminum. And he was telling me the story about how he called up the rep and he's like, man, is there any way to make the machine do X, Y, and Z? And the guy's like, yeah, punch in the code, da, 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 and right. And it'll open that up and it costs, 1200 bucks. Yeah. So, you know, even in the, in the advanced manufacturing side, uh, they're selling software as, as an aftermarket, uh, piece. So yeah, from, from your car to your CNC machine and everything well, in between. Right. I still, I still have to take the Norton down to the dealer to get the stupid explore mode sure. uh, unlocked <laughs> because they did not, they didn't have it ready when I uh, bought the bike. Yeah. Um, the Husky hadn't released it. And so now I got to go and take a, basically a whole day for me because of where I live to go get this stupid thing unlocked. Cause other than that, I do all my service at home. What's the explore mode do on that Husky? It's the rally mode for KTM. It's the, okay. it's the yep. nine level traction control. Yep. That's all, that's all that it really is. And, you know, it gives you that ride mode so you can control the TC on the fly. Um, uh, also it, um, there's some other tiny difference with it. I can't remember, but that's essentially what what you're paying for. Yeah, the guys that all ride with us got into that this summer, this past summer on the on the 890s, with dialing that thing in and how much slippage they wanted around those corners and you know things like that. It's pretty cool. Once you really get get the hang of that, that is so slick. I mean, that's a whole separate topic that we could go into. But and I got to do some more videos about that this year on traction control off road and ABS off road because people still aren't getting it. They're like, oh, right. they just need to turn that off. I'm like, no, mm-hmm. like you can really benefit from it if you know how to set it. Yeah. Yeah. Okay. I'm, I'm going to stick to this, this three category. So we got the 890 in the middleweight. Let's go to the, the heavyweight. I think I know your answer here, which, which is BMW GS 1250 Adventure. Well, that is what I, what I chose to buy. So that's probably, <laughs> it's hard, it's, I mean, but the caveat to that is that there's more options coming out. So like when I bought my GS, the new Tiger wasn't out. Now right. that's Tiger out. 1200. Yeah. Yeah. And they've got the two versions, just like with the GS, they've got the, the, you know, the big tank one and they've got the smaller one that looks pretty good. I mean, I don't know. It'd be tough. Um, you know, KTM, the new 1290 KTM, because yeah. they finally did the uh saddle style fuel tank like right. with the 890. Yeah. So because I didn't like the like the 1190s and the 1090s and stuff because they had the, the gas up high, like Way most bikes. Yeah. And when I rode those, I was like, oh, I don't know, it feels a little heavy, maybe. 
but that new 1290 with the saddle tank, I think that's an 160 horsepower is compelling. The Multistrada V4, the four cylinder with the radar cruise and everything like that. I mean, that also wasn't out when I bought my GS. So I don't know. I But, but you know what? You know, I like, uh, I think you went into this uh, in one of your videos where you're really categorizing these these heavy bikes as adventure touring bikes with a little A for adventure and a big D T for touring. Yeah. Which I, I wish somebody had told me that before I started taking my 1200 on single track because I'm not, I mean, Terry will attest that we've said a thousand times this podcast. I'm not that good of a rider. And we took those big bikes out and treated them like they were 500s. Yeah. You know, with tour tech boxes and, you know, a thousand pounds of gear strapped on the back <laughs> of that thing, you know, well, everybody does that. That's, that's normal. Like it's because we saw it on the movie, right? We saw it. On yeah. The movie. And, you know, but it's a 600 pound bike. I mean, it's, it's more for sport touring with some, some gravel roads and some, you know, not everybody is this pro level rider that you see on, you know, on some, some videos and stuff where they can throw these 600 pound bikes around most people can't do that so people migrate down to the smaller like what do you have now I, i'm get, do you still have well, a ds or do you have something else no i i actually had a 1090 adventure r and yeah. i'm waiting for an 890 adventure r to come yeah. in yeah i mean it's that's the progression because if you ride off road it's like why am i lugging around the gigantic motorcycle right the capabilities there, but it's kind of hard to use it, and you're always kind of intimidated by it. Yeah, um, exactly right. Yeah, but there. There's of, but there's a lot of riders who are 95% pavement, and for them, the GS is you can't beat it. Yeah. No. Now, let's talk about the uh, adventure GS adventure versus uh, the GSA versus the GS. Mm -hmm. um, when I own mine, I got talked into the GS. Because the guy said, are you going to ride with other riders? I said, yes, always. And he said, well, if they don't have a GSA, you're stopping with them to get fuel. So you might as well get the, the GS because you, you'll be stopping anyway when they stop with whatever bike they have. Mm -hmm. um, so what, what caused you? Do you do a lot of solo long distance stuff that you wanted that eight gallon tank on the GSA? Or were, was there some other... Uh, rationale that you you went with that over the GS? I think the biggest thing is because I'd had a couple standard GSs before. So I just mm -hmm. had, wanted to try the GSA. That was probably number one, right? Um, the big gas tank, it's really too big. I would just prefer like six and a half. Mm -hmm. um, the perfect size is the Africa Twin Adventure Sports. It's six and a half gallons. That's the, that's the right size for me. I don't need eight gallons, but that said, I do like it because I have a few times used, you know, that 300 to 350 mile range just because I didn't want to stop or it wasn't a good place to stop. But there's really not anywhere in the world or in the U.S. where there's 350 miles between fuel stops. Like the longest BDR section is probably like 220 or something or 240. Right. Um, so that Great Divide Basin up in Wyoming. Yeah. We're going through there and being like, ooh, how are we going to do fuel here? That's, that is a long stretch. That's like 250 yeah. or 260. Yeah. So the GSA is good for that. But the rest of the time, it's a lot of extra weight that's pretty high up on the bike. Um, yeah, you can be all around cores on the back <laughs> instead of gas. 
Yeah. <laughs> I mean, it's, it's a lot, like, I don't always feel the tank because it's, you can notice it's the only bike where I notice if it's a full tank or not with the weight, mm-hmm. because it's just so much of it. So I would like to see like a six and a half gallon tank. That would be better. Um, I do like the standard crash bars, which are actually pretty decent and the luggage racks. Cause you're going to buy all that stuff anyway. Right. So and you get that standard on the, you get it right? standard and you know, the wind protection is better. I, I don't know. I'm really split on that. I mean, in the GSA is almost a better value actually per dollar, but the standard GS is a sportier look. It looks nicer to me and it just psychologically feels a little smaller. Mm-hmm. And that's psychological mm-hmm. is a big thing. It um, is. It especially is. Especially so, on some technical stuff. I don't know. I'm, if I was buying a, G, a new GS today, I'd probably get the standard one. Would you, would you buy a BMW again with what's out on the market currently? Not right now, just because I think there's too many other things I want to try. And I've had three or four bikes with the boxer engine. Mm-hmm. It, I would miss it though, because it has a unique combination of things on it. I mean, it's got a boxer, which has some things I like. It's got the, the tail lever suspension, which I like. It's got a shaft drive. That's that. If you want that stuff that, you know, no one else has it. So mm-hmm. it's kind of compelling for that reason. But I'd probably try Ducati or I'd try the Triumph or the KTM, the, the, the new 1290. Um, but but also I've thought a lot about like I don't even really need that bike because yeah. riding the Norden with a few changes, the Norden can tour like crazy. Yeah. yeah. It has a 250 mile fuel range. You know, it's got a the seat is more comfortable on the Norden than my GS. Really? Um, yeah, it, wow. it is. Um the like it's got cruise. The only thing really missing is better windshield. You know, I wish I had an adjustable windshield like the mm-hmm. GS do. But besides that, I don't know. What do you it, – it's it's got the same power-to-weight ratio because it's so much lighter. Mm-hmm. It's more fun to ride. So it's really tough to justify keeping the GS. I, I do want to do a couple trips on it this summer. Um, but after that, it might be goodbye because just so I can buy some other bikes to do content with. Yeah, free up some space in the garage, right? Yeah, and, and the money to like invest in some other things. I mean, I've got to, I want to do a whole series on electric motorcycles, you know, love it or hate it. It's it's a big topic. It's coming. And I want to do a series about that. And um, you know, these bikes, you know, it's like I, I can only have so many at once in terms of what I own. Um, so so yeah, do you GF- think do you think we'll look back on on Ewan McGregor and, and Charlie Borman and Long Way Up and say, oh, they saw the future or they that that jumped the shark it could go either way i think that uh i mean i have a friend who works for rivian the electric truck maker and we talk about this stuff a lot but the battery chemistry is not there and it might not and the charging infrastructure is not there and that could take a long time i think with motorcycles it could be it's going to be longer than cars because where do you put a battery a car a car or a truck You've got room for a giant battery under the passenger compartment. A motorcycle, there's no room. Yeah. And you're worried about weight and you're worried, you know, there's no space for it. So how are you possibly going to get? And until you have something with, you know, around a 200 mile range, it's a no go. You're not going to, I mean, would either of you buy a bike that could only go 90 miles? Not on an adventure bike. Unless it was a computer, not an adventure bike. Yeah. A commuter, I mean, maybe. but even then the charging time is so is slow. It's not as fast as the car charging. Yeah. So I mean, maybe that. if I was, if it was a commuter and I could drive it to work and, and plug it in, 
yeah. for eight hours and then and then ride at home and you know it wasn't excessive miles. Uh, Terry brought over you had a loaner bike and and they loaned you one of those zeros. Yeah. And he brought over and he's like, yeah, get on the back of this thing. And it's a fun experience. I mean, it feels like you're in that video game Tron or whatever. Like you're, you know, it's kind of from the eighties, you're zipping around and it, you know, it's got all the power all, all the time. Um, so it was fun to ride for a minute, but yeah, but a motorcycle, you know, cars are going electric and that makes sense, but a motorcycle is a very different product, right? It, people are riding it for doing it for a different experience. Yeah. Unless you're commuting, right? Unless you're right. just a commuter doing it to save money, then you might just might as well get like an electric bicycle, honestly, sure. or something. Yeah, you know, depending on the yeah. distance. But but the adventure world it is yeah, it's a totally different. yeah. But also the whole like uh, touring cruiser and Harley Davidson and Sturgis crowd. Can you see them riding zero? You know, zeros or no, live wire? No, live wire. No, because and they're also super expensive and even at that price they're not making money on those they're probably right. losing money but they're still 20 grand or so so anyway i got to explore all this in a series of videos so i was looking at maybe buying a zero dsr which is kind of their dual sport or adventure kind of mm -hmm. bike and um there was a couple guys who did a video i think it was sponsored somehow but they did the colorado bdr on a couple dsrs and there was also a couple who went across who did the tat the trans america trail one of them was riding the DSR, but the other one was on a gas bike. And they were on a podcast. They were on the uh, ADV Rider Radio podcast. The mm -hmm. other. I listened to that. That was very fascinating. But yeah. he, had to, he had to do all sorts of crazy modifications to the charging system for that to work. Yeah. You know? I think there's an element, too, of like working on your motorcycle. I mean, mm -hmm. you know, charging a battery or switching out a battery isn't as fun as i mean if you're klr you know you got a klr and you're doing the 22 cent mod or the you know the doohickey or or you know any of those mods that you can look online and kind of get your hands dirty and get in there and on an electric bike you know you're messing with superchargers and how fast you can you know there's not much there yeah there's like a belt mm -hmm. drive and tires and brake pads but that's about it there's no other maintenance which is good in some respect, but it, it takes away that opportunity connect to connect with the motorcycle. Cause those yeah. long nights in the garage, you know, working on a carburetor, there's a lot, there's value to that. Yeah. They're, they're well, really I think all, all the guys we, the guys we ride with, I mean, you know, you get some whiskey and you go into a garage and you start wrenching on a bike. And I mean, that's fun. You know, yeah. you, you, you kind of forge friendships over that. I think those guys clearly on, on long way up, prove to us that the at the, in the adventure world it's a it's a long way off it really is and i think they people really have to be if they want to promote this kind of stuff they really have to be more careful about i mean towing generators around like <laughs> right. that diesel pretty, generators yeah that's just shooting yourself in the foot like obviously yeah. people are going to roast you for that right i mean it's I I appreciate the vision. I mean, you know, I think electric vehicles is where it's going. I think Rivian probably got a lot out of that, but I don't know that Harley sold a bunch of live wires after that thing. Yeah. I'm really curious to see what happens with, and that's why I want to do a video series on this because there's a lot of interest in it. There's a lot of uh, emotions both ways. Some people really mm -hmm. hate it. Some people are against it. Some people think it's, you know, the best thing ever. It's like, it's like, you know, some, some people with like Teslas are like, so into it. Like I like Teslas. I helped my aunt just buy one, but I'm not 
going to be like a fanboy of of any certain vehicle just because you know like Elon Musk is tweeting. Balance. You're using energy to go down the road. I don't care how what kind of motor it has. It's not it's not sustainable to drive at all. So right. it's whether it's electric or gas, you're still using energy. It has to be generated. Yeah. And refined in some way. And just because you outsource it now to a power plant doesn't really like you'd really have to do the math critically to understand if it was better. And yeah. a lot of times it's not as it's not as green as people say. Well, let's let's get back to gas powered adventure bikes. Yeah. What what does Honda have to do with the Africa twin to make that a viable player in this category? I mean, I, I don't want to say it's not a viable, but it's when you start to stack it up, it it gets knocked down that list pretty quick. I think they have to make a smaller one. Okay. Everybody, you know, every other comment when I when I talk about Africa Twin is where is the Africa Twin 750, right? Mm -hmm. And I mean, I agree basically because the Africa Twin is it's tough because it's kind of in between midsize and full size. And if you're going to do a lot of off-road, you're just going to get a T7 or an 890. And if you're going to do a ton of touring, you're probably going to get a 1200 or or something like that. Although the Africa Twin is very good for touring, but it, when you look at the horsepower, you're like, wait a minute, what? Where's the horsepower? Like it's an 1100, yeah. it's an 1100 cc, but it only has a hundred horsepower. Whereas the 901 that I just that I have is 890 cc and has 106 horsepower. Right. And it weighs about 40, 50 pounds less. So you're like, hmm, which bike do I want to ride? <laughs> yeah. 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 Um, so but, it kind of, you think it kind of fit in there as a tweener? It does now. I don't, I'm trying to think when it came out in 2016, it was like the bee's knees because mm -hmm. you didn't have as much competition back then. Um, and I remember I bought one when they first came out and, um, I loved it and I still do love that generation of them. I think the I like the look, I like that rally look, look with good. the gold yeah. rims. And I mean, that thing looked cool. Mm -hmm. And it was great. It still is great. It's still what I recommend to people for a used adventure bike. I think it's still like the best value used adventure bike if you want reliability. And it can do off-road really well. And on the road, it's smooth. It's reliable. Um, looks great. Doesn't cost too much. But but then all the midsize offerings started to come in. You know, you kind of got stuck in between those those two categories. Now, they do have the adventure sport version, which is you know, the bigger version, but it's, you know, it's the same engine and, and stuff like that. And it's still chain drive. So if you want, if you want a lot of touring, you might be looking at a shaft drive bike. Mm -hmm. So I don't know, it's, it's tough, but a lot of people still love them because it's Honda mm -hmm. because of that. Um, who, else, I, who else, who else is making a shaft driven bike right now, other than BMW is the Yamaha has the, the super, super tenor tenor been soldiering on, you know, since 20, 12 they made some updates to it it has electronic suspension it has a few things but it's not getting a lot of coverage because it's just it's kind of just left behind by everything else in terms of mm -hmm. tech and, and weight and everything it's shaft drive and then the uh the new tigers are shaft the 1200 are they okay yeah so it's good to see it's good to see that because i do like shaft drive i have to admit like not having to ever look at deal with the chain tension or lubrication or that's nice. Heck yeah. yeah. But it adds a lot of weight. It adds a lot of weight though. Yeah. Yeah. They're, they're not light and, and um, 
as much as people want to say they're totally hands off, I mean, BMW's had some problems, right, with that. Yeah, that lower. I, I even covered that in, in one of my videos recently. I said they really need to get their act together on that because there's been too many issues with those. Um, the Japanese shaft drive bikes have been dead reliable pretty much. But, the, okay. but for some reason, BMW, because it's German, they have to over-engineer it. And they make it so complicated that it breaks, you know. Um, okay, let's let's talk a little bit about aftermarket. Um, I know you you're you have sponsorship from Rocky Mountain ATV and from Rev Revzilla. Sponsorship and and budget aside, what do you like out there in the aftermarket? You know, uh, well, okay. So on bike parts, I really like to favor some of the more smaller kind of U.S. based companies like Black Dog Cycle Works and um, things like that. I really do like those products. And sometimes I have um, competing <laughs> competing interests with some of my the companies I work with that sure. want to that want to promote their own brands, which are still good. But I would, you know, I might put a different product on if it was totally my own choice. And then, um, so I like this. I like to support you know kind of more smaller family type businesses. Yeah, and there's, a, there's a lot of them in the U.S. that make amazing motorcycle parts. Um, I mean, I've been buying you know Wolfman luggage and Giant Loop luggage since they started. Um, way back in like the nineties or early two, well, I guess it was around 2000 or so when I started riding adventure bikes, but so companies like that, I, I do, I do really care about that. People criticize me for the Tusk products. Mm-hmm. Um, but I do, I usually like to buy us made when I, when I can, when it's reasonable. Mm-hmm. Um, is, is all Rocky mountain ATV Tusk stuff us made? Are they making uh, that Tusk domestically, is, or do you know? Tusk is not made domestically. I mean, it's designed here. Yeah, and all their employees are here, but then they have factories. Mm-hmm. Just like with Climb Gear that we all wear, it's not right. built here. I mean, I understand the economics of the situation. If it if I was running a business, I'd probably have it built over in Vietnam too. Honestly, yeah. but um, it's kind of <laughs> yeah, we stopped we stopped off at that Climb factory in Idaho. Yeah, on one of our rides, and you know they let us in, and we're in the showroom, and we're head to toe climb gear yeah walking around their show and we were just dying for somebody to ask us what we were doing i mean we had 10 bikes lined up outside you know full of adventure gear we walk in we probably have forty thousand dollars worth of their product on (laughs) on our guys and and nobody everybody's like hey can we help you with anything (laughs) you know and we're like Mm -hmm. and finally finally one of the one of the senior vps actually came down and, and said, Hey, can you guys want a tour and, and took us all around. And then yeah. came, came very, very close to riding with us over to uh, Sun Valley uh, from there uh, ended up not doing that, but I, I, I love going in and watching and it was cool. I mean, they had folks up there, see, uh, seamstresses and um, folks designing stuff, uh, you know, from helmets to jackets and, product all over the place so it was really fun to to see that stuff being and i think they do the concepts there and then they do you know kind of the mass production stuff overseas yeah i mean people need to understand economic realities of things i mean it's already expensive enough as it is if it was made here how much more would it be right Mm -hmm. so Mm -hmm. and there's if they price it so high people aren't going to buy it and why would you have a business with a product that people won't buy so like it's Moscow, really- Moscow's testing that. I mean, they, they have some really expensive stuff that I go out and buy, you know, Moscow, I mean, but it's not I mean, made here in the U S no, no, but it's designed yeah. here, you know, right. I mean, they, yeah, they, and they, 
you know, they, they have a blog and they, they talk about how all that works. And I, they're an amazing company too. Like they, they weren't around when I started doing this stuff and they kind of came up and all of a sudden everybody was using Moscow luggage, you know, and different things. And now they make riding gear, which is really nice. Um, there's a lot of great companies. So I try to spread my money around when I'm outfitting a bike, like mm-hmm. on the Norden, like I've got, um, a Moto Pumps GPS mount. I've got Black Dog Pigs. I've got the Tusk Skid Plate. I've got uh, Nelson Rig bag on the back. I've got, you know, a windshield from Germany. I, so I try to like spread Barkbuster handguards, which is Australia. Yeah. Um, so I, I, you know, I like all the stuff out there. I mean, riding gear, it is. Climb really figured out the marketing and sort of what we want and the look and the and the function of it and the protection, and they CE rate their stuff. Like you can go on there and say, okay, it's double A rated. Like they actually test their jackets. Uh, I mean, it's hard to beat their stuff. Right. You know, Motoport Motoport is a company here in Southern California that builds Kevlar riding gear, which is more mm-hmm. protective. It's more protective than than Climb or anything else, but aesthetically, it's not the greatest. That is cool. And, um, you know, it's hard to buy because it's all like custom made. And so it's too much work for the consumer. Yeah. You, have, and I, you know, see, you got to like measure everything. No, people are going to buy like, okay, I'm a size medium. They're going to order it. That's yeah. what you're willing to do typically. Um, I thought, I thought it was interesting. So, um, I was emailing with you Ian today and I, I kind of had, you know, went around the world or around the country today, travel wise, just to, to get back home. Uh, but this past weekend, I was up in the UP, the uh, Upper Peninsula of, of Michigan, snowmobiling. Every snowmobile has got to climb. So yeah. they figured out the summer season. They figured out the winter season. Well, they started a snowmobile. They yeah. started with snowmobile and, and went to went to motorcycle. And I think what Polaris owns them now. But, yeah, but they're, it, marketing is powerful. How stuff looks is powerful. Like we know how humans behave, right? I mean, mm-hmm. if you see people, if you see a bunch of people wearing it and it looks cool it's going to sell like, duh, you know, and they figured mm-hmm. they know that and these just reality of it. And, but I, I've never, I don't think I've ever had a bad experience with any climb gear. I've had some, I liked more than others. And I think they're actually getting a little bit better as they go on. Mm-hmm. Like I had, I had the version one Carlsbad. Now I have the version two Carlsbad and the new one's way better. Yeah. Um, you know, and I might try the new Badlands that they just, that they just put out. So I, I don't know. It, it's all it's all I wear, and and you know I used to have that Baja pant for the summer that let yeah. a lot of air through, and now I just go with the Gore-Tex, um, which is a little bit hotter, but it, it, it vents really well. And you know if you're going to have yeah. one pant for twelve days or thirteen days or what a two couple weeks out, and you're going to inevitably get caught in the rain at some point, uh, that Gore-Tex pant isn't, isn't bad at all. We could we could do a whole podcast on gear because I'm getting ready to do a video on gear selection. Like, wh- what does it all mean, and how do you choose? And because there's yeah. mesh gear, I I usually like spring, summer, fall. I'm typically in mesh, and then I I'll wear layers under and over it because I just tend to run hot and off road. I just want the ventilation. But if it's cool or wet, then the Gore-Tex is really nice to have. Are you are you a all the gear all the time kind of guy with the yeah. Rio everywhere and yeah yeah I definitely am because I've had enough accidents and I've seen you know been next to people who've died and stuff on rides and I'm just like no it's not an option for me like I don't care if the riding suit costs twenty five hundred dollars right it, it's a hospital bill one hospital bill will be you know 
way beyond that, plus the pain and suffering you're going to go through. So we can both attest. To I, that. I'm so <laughs> right. yeah. I, I I'm a huge believer in it, but I don't like to try to convince people that or whatever because I if people ask me, I, I tell them. But there's a lot of different viewpoints, and I try to be respectful. There's people who ride without a helmet, and I I'm not going to. I'm not going to say that they're wrong. I just, that's not me. Hey, when you're, do, when you're doing your videos, because a lot of your videos go into super, a lot of detail and, and maybe, you know, 40 minutes when you're looking at the algorithms, is there a sweet spot in, in YouTube videos of how long somebody will watch? Or is it, if the content's good, the content's good. Cause I'll watch a 45 minute video on, you know, change in oil if it's good. It really is the value that the content is going to deliver, right? And how, how someone connects with it. So it depends on the topic of the video. If it's something that I know is a major, uh, a major point of interest or a major point of research for somebody, like when I did my GSA one-year video, I was like, this is just not going to be short. And the person really thinking of spending 25 grand is probably okay clicking on a 40 minute video right. for that mm -hmm. right from somebody it's not just a press intro review like if it was a press intro review you wouldn't click on a 40 minute press intro ride right. but if it's a guy who's owned it for a year and written it all over okay well he's probably got a lot to say there um so i really put myself in the in the viewer's position and say what value is am i looking for out of this video and what is a reasonable length so uh, you know a video on like um a set of tires or something that's, I mean, that's going to have to be reasonable, like 10 minutes or something. Mm -hmm. Right. To see like emotionally, how much can I invest in this, in this click right now? You know, but if it's a motorcycle review or, or it could be like a ride, to, like a really cool story or adventure ride somewhere, which I don't do a lot of because I don't frankly have the time to make those kind of videos, but you watch more of that. I mean, how much watch time does itchy boots get probably because she's telling a story. Mm -hmm. you know mm -hmm. um and she's really good at it and yeah. uh you know if she keeps her videos what are her videos like 20 minutes or something about 20 minutes yeah 20, that's, that's minutes. usually that's usually that what i shoot for is around 20 minutes for most kinds of things but event once in a while i'll because you have to test things you have to test a short video and you have to test a long video and see but if it's a motorcycle review and it's a detailed review i don't want people to have to try to find the other part of the video because you know how YouTube is. It doesn't automatically show that right there. It yeah. shows some random other video that you don't even, you know? So yeah. I'd, I'd prefer to make it easier for the, the people doing the research, just have everything in the one video with chapters in it. Mm -hmm. Yep. It's interesting how, you know, I go and, and when I'm looking at videos, I look at how many other people have looked at it. Right. So yeah. when, before I hit it, I'm like, Oh, it's got 45,000 views on it. So it's got to be compelling. And so it's kind of like likes beget likes, right? It well, that and watches that, beget you just, watches. You just described the problem of being a YouTuber is that until you get big, until you get to a certain size, it's very, it, the snowball has to get big enough to roll down the hill. Mm -hmm. And that's a real challenge. But I think once you get to that, then things are in some ways easier. Cause I could, I could probably even make a crappy video and still get quite a few views because I have a big enough audience. Yeah. Right? The ball's rolling. Yep. Yeah. But if, and then if I make a really good video, you know, then the, the other side of it, but 
for somebody, a smaller creator, they could make the most amazingly cinema, you know, cinematography ever that blows mine away. But YouTube doesn't know. They don't, you know, the computer algorithm doesn't know that it's a pretty video or a nice yeah. camera work. And the other thing that a lot of creators don't seem to understand or don't want to deal with is that like it's more about content, what they're going to learn or why, why they're clicking it versus like all the fancy cinematography stuff. That's yeah. really not, I mean, that's nice to have, um, but that's really not ultimately what's going to make you successful or not. Most right. likely. So. Cont- content story. Yeah. Story content, what they're going to learn, why, you know, why are they going to click on it? Hey Ian, you know, Matt and I yeah. clearly ride, adventure bikes for fun and you know the enjoyment of being out on the road or on uh, off road and camping and so forth and you do this for a living do you get to enjoy your rides not as much honestly yeah. i mean and that's that's something i'm really struggling with i um i got to figure that out because i think what i have to do is force myself to go on rides where i'm not working but now that's very, that's a big ask because that means like basically nothing is happening for that week or two, but I'm going to have to do that. And people are not going to like it that, Oh, he went on this trip and didn't make a video, but like, I've got to ride. I've got to experience riding in the way I used to. Mm-hmm. And I'm starting to lose that because now it's like, okay, I got six cameras. I got, I got all these memory cards and I got to plan out all the stops and get the certain footage and you know deal and then the camera locks up and everything and it ruins the whole you know afternoon and so it totally changes uh in my opinion anyway your experience and i i talked to like i i was talking to sterling and nor uh, norin the other day the guy who shoots the bdr talk about talk about a drone yeah, guy right I yeah mean, he's and, the best and i i told him i'm like how do you i'm like how do you still do this and he just kind of stared at me he's like it just takes a long time. And I go, and I, and if I, like he did that whole series where he rode Colorado uh, last summer. Yeah. He did all those episodes and yeah. I'm like that. And I know how much work that was. And I'm just, I could never do that. I just, I'm not, I'm not even willing to put that kind of time in to make it pretty because financially I'm just too business oriented. It doesn't make sense. Like mm-hmm. I'm not going to earn enough money from that video series, even though it's beautiful and meaningful I like, I can't spend my time like that. Right. Um, but I really respect his, his artistic like passion and commitment to the filmmaking that yeah. I will never, I will never have that level because I just well, don't, it doesn't make sense from a business point of view. You know, it's symbiotic. He he's, he's creating the, the BDR films that are getting everybody excited to go yeah. watch YouTube and decide what bike they're going to get from you. <laughs> So, uh, so, so maybe, yeah. maybe it works, uh, well with both, both your skill sets. But I really, what, I really what, respect those guys who put all so much work in to the, to the footage. I even see small channels with amazing footage and I'm just have so much respect for that. And I feel bad that I don't do better job, you know? Yeah. I mean, again, Simon, if you, if you go to his website and look yeah. at some of the photos that he's done, it's just amazing I know uh, how he captures that. I mean, Terry and I have threatened to ride out to Idaho just so he can, we can pay him to f- make us look like we're better riders <laughs> than we are. <laughs> Ian, what, what's coming up on your channel? What can we expect over the next couple months? 
Well, I'm going to, you know, continue the series on the Nord end. Um, I've got, I'm going to do a lot more motorcycle reviews this year. So right now I've got the FA50 GSA. Uh, I've got the Kawasaki Z900RS. I do street bikes too. I don't, I, I don't just do adventure. And then I've got um, CRF 300L, which everyone's asked for. So I've got a bunch of bike reviews and then I'm doing the BMW R18, the big bagger, the touring yeah. one. And I've got the 750GS and I'm going to go through the portfolio of all the manufacturers and continue to, because that's really like a core part of my viewership is like getting Mm -hmm. the reviews out there. And then I'll probably do some trips this summer. Like I want to do more BDRs. I want to try to do all the BDRs. I've only done a couple of them. So I want to try to get the rest of them and do some filming with them, but not too fancy. I'd like to, I'm going to do some rallies and some traveling this summer, but I do want to have some time to just ride on my own and and do that and i'm trying to carve out the time for that are you a solo um, rider doing, or you do you have a lot of the time a lot of the time i do but mostly it's due to poor planning not because i don't i, I like riding with a couple people but usually my planning is so crappy and with a baby at home and my wife works it's just my schedule it's like if i have a three-day weekend it's like okay i'm gonna can do this pack the bike tonight and go yeah, in yeah. the morning you know and, and other people can't respond to that kind of schedule so but I would like to ride uh, with a few people like the summer for some of these trips. And I'm going to go to some rallies and stuff like that. But I like riding alone. I enjoy it in, in the freedom of it and just not being tied to someone else's issues or schedule is great. Yeah. Um, but, uh, but when you have a good riding partner, it's also great too. So Ian Schoenlieber, Big Rock Moto. We will put a link to your YouTube channel on our website under the podcast. Uh, you know, it was great talking to you tonight. Uh, you're a, a a wealth of knowledge. I, I know a, a lot of guys that know a lot about motorcycles, but I don't know if I know anybody that knows more about motorcycles across all the categories. No and kid. As in-depth as you do. So really appreciate you coming on the show and sharing your knowledge. And uh, for those out there, go to Big Rock Moto uh, on YouTube, subscribe, and catch all of Ian's latest videos. Ian, thanks so much for coming on. Really appreciate it. Thank you for having me. It was a great time. Thanks for listening to another episode of the Adventure Motorcycle USA podcast. For more information about this episode or to learn more about Adventure Motorcycle USA, please visit AdventureMotorcycleUSA.com.